This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. A couple things before we start this class, then we'll pray. Um, Some of you do not have a seat. If you don't um, and you want to stand, that's perfectly okay. Um, Nobody will be embarrassed if you are not. If you sit on the floor, that's fine if you want to do that. Just however you are most comfortable, feel free to do that. If there's not enough room in the back, if others come and you want to come up and sit on the floors over here or over here, where however you are the most comfortable and get the most out of class, Does anybody have any seats by them that somebody may want to sit in? There's a seat here. There's another seat over here. So we do have some hands raised with some seats. Don't feel uncomfortable at all. I'm sure more people will come in. And so some have asked about questions. What I'm going to try to do in this session is... I will teach till about 11.15, 11.20, and then give you a chance for some questions as well at the end until 11.30. I think our time, this particular second session, is over at 11.30. Let me tell you what we're going to do this afternoon. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about this class. I'll give a brief summary of where we were this morning. How many of you were not here this morning? It'll let me know how much to summarize. Okay. How many of you were here this morning? All right, so I'll give you a brief three or four minute summary of the first class, and uh, so you'll kind of catch up to us of where we are right now in the class period. This afternoon at um, the first period, I will talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the latter rain. What's the difference between the early rain and the latter rain? or the prerequisites of receiving the latter rain. So we'll talk about that. Then the second section this afternoon, I'm going to talk about the shaking and the sifting. You know, if you look down through history, God has always purified his church by calling out a group of believers. If you look at the days of Abraham, God called out Abraham from the larger body. If you look at the days of Israel, God called out Israel from the pagan community. If you look at the New Testament church, God called out a group of believers. If you look at uh, Protestantism, God called out Protestantism from Catholicism. And if you look at Adventism, God called out Adventism. Here is the essential question. In the last days of earth's history, will God call out another movement out of the Adventist church? Will there be a remnant of the remnant? And what I'm going to show this afternoon is theologically that's not true. That all the idea of God calling out another movement, but God does have a method and it's the shaking. And so rather than calling out, there'll be a shaking out. And we're going to say what elements lead to the shaking, what trends can we see in the Adventist church today that are uh, preparing for that great shaking. Some are going out today, many more are going to go out in the future, and many more are going to come in. And we're going to see the mighty working of God in miraculous ways. So this afternoon, the latter rain, loud cry, what is the latter rain, what is the loud cry, how does that function from the Bible and the writings of Ellen White, then the shaking, we're going to look at that. Um, Let's pray, and then we're going to jump right into this session. Father in heaven, we thank you with all of our hearts for Jesus. We sense that Jesus is the center of all prophecy. Prophecy without Jesus is like dry bones, but we know that Jesus has substance, and he teaches clarity of truth about the last day events. And we've been told that we who know the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. So grant to us, our dear Father, eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to experience and minds to comprehend. We pray thee in Christ's name. Amen. As you look down through history, God has always been with his people in times of crisis. Was God with Moses during the days of Egypt? 
It was God with Israel even in the days of apostasy in 40 days, 40 years when they wandered in the wilderness. He was. Think about Daniel, faithful to God, yet a captive in Babylon, and eventually thrown in the lion's den. Where was God? He was with Daniel. Think about Joseph in his bondage in Egypt. Where was God? He was there. Think about the Apostle Paul when he was beaten with rods, shipwrecked, stoned, cast into prison. Where was God? He was there. Think about Peter in Acts chapter 12. God was there. I want to give you the absolute assurance that in the coming time of trouble, God does not forsake his people. God is there. Often young people have come to me and they've said, you know, I can't possibly think about making it through the time of trouble because I'm just not strong enough and I know I'm going to fall apart at that period of time. Let me assure you that nobody can make it through the time of trouble. But let me also assure you that in Jesus and by Jesus and through Jesus you can make it. I love the old song, just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear, just when I need him most. So when we study the events of the future, Christ does not forsake his people at a time when we need him most. Jesus is there. In the early session in the morning, we looked at the book of Revelation, and we've seen that there are three chapters in the book of Revelation that describe the true church. Revelation 10 describes the prophetic rise of the true church, that just as New Testament Christianity rose out of disappointment, God would have a church, a people, a movement that would rise out of disappointment. That just as the disciples failed to understand prophecy of 31 AD and were bitterly disappointed when Christ was crucified, so another band of believers in 1844 would be bitterly disappointed. But yet, just as the New Testament church looked to the resurrected Christ in the sanctuary, so God's people would look to Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly temple. There they would see Jesus as the great high priest. They would see a manifestation of Christ in the law of God. They would understand his law. And as the result of that, they would uh, go out to proclaim that law and proclaim the living Christ and lead men and women back to obedience. So we took a look at that. We pointed out in Revelation chapter 10 especially that the angel says in Revelation 10 verse 6 that there would be time no longer. The Greek word for time is chronos. The chronology, we get the word chronology from that. The chronology of the book of Daniel would run out at the end of the 2300-year prophecy after 1844. So after 1844, there would never be a message again based on a specific, definite time prophecy. You find that in the seventh volume of the Testimonies, page uh, the... Let me check the reference again. It's seventh volume of the Testament. I think it's 971, but I don't want to misquote it, so I'll tell you exactly. It's the seventh volume of the Testament, page 971. It says, after 1842 and 1844, there can be no definite prophetic time. The longest time reckoning is to the autumn of 1844. So when you hear people say, for example, well, we need to figure out the 2520 prophecy or 1335, and this is going to come down to a specific time prophecy that's going to give us an event, let us know when the National Sunday Law is. Uh, when you see them look at, for example, Revelation, the 17th chapter, and they begin to talk about the, uh, the seven heads and ten horns, and they claim that the seven heads are seven so-called popes down, totally out of the context of the prophecy, and try to talk about time events, you know immediately that they're, they're going in the wrong direction. Because since 1844, God is not waiting for time. He's rather waiting for a people who love him enough to proclaim his message to the ends of the earth, uh, who reveal his loving character to a waiting world and a watching universe, to reflect in their lives the obedience of Christ. And so through Jesus and by Jesus, Jesus will have a people that are totally in love with him. So what we are looking at is great events that will take place, but those events are not locked to a specific time period. They're rather, they are intimately related to a group of people who are committed to the living Christ, 
who reveal Jesus and are passionate about proclaiming his message to the world, as they proclaim that message, it unleashes the forces of hell. The marvelous working of God from above in latter rain power is called forth, it calls forth the marvelous working of Satan. So in the last days, you have two things that are really taking place. You have the marvelous working of God through his Holy Spirit, but you also have, you also have the marvelous working of Satan, and you see both of those blended. Now, to get a good idea of these last day events, we went to Revelation 14, and we're going to go to Revelation 14 again and look at what the text itself says. Somebody asked once, can Seventh-day Adventists demonstrate from the Bible alone a, an outline of last-day events? And the answer is yes. Ellen White's writings help to confirm our position from Scripture. But indeed, we can show from the Bible alone the outline of last-day events. So we're going there to Revelation, the 14th chapter. We're looking at verse 6 and 7 in summary in these first few minutes for those of you that missed the first class. And then we're going to jump right into the issues. Revelation chapter 14, we're looking there at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. This is the heart of Adventism's message in the last generation. And I saw another angel flying. The angel flies. He goes urgently. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. The gospel, the good news that Jesus' grace redeems us from the guilt of the past, the penalty of the past, and Jesus' grace delivers us from the power of the present. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that God's grace justifies us, but that same grace sanctifies us. It's not that we are justified by grace and sanctified by works. It's all by grace, isn't it? His grace justifies us. His grace sanctifies us. But His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient to deliver us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. His grace is sufficient to deliver us from the, from the guilt of sin and from the grip of sin. God's grace is not merely grace that delivers us from what we have done in the past, but it's grace that enters our life and transforms our life so we live differently in the present. We come to Christ just as we are, but we don't remain just as we are, because where sin doth abound, what does grace do? What does grace do? It abounds much more. So, here is a message that goes to the ends of the earth. I saw another angel flying with the everlasting gospel. The gospel is always everlasting. The gospel is never out of date. The gospel is always eternal. Just about, it, actually it was last week, week before last actually, I was in one of the Muslim countries and we had four public meetings and I opened the Bible and talked about Jesus very openly. And in that country, there are two million Syrian Muslim refugees. There are Iraqi refugees. And at the end of the meeting, I said, I'm not going to leave tonight. I'm not going to go home tonight, or neither am I going to go to the back door. But I want to come down. Anybody who needs prayer, I want you to come. And I, I want you to talk to me about your heartaches, your longings. I want to pray with you. Muslim after Muslim came to the front, and they said to me, Pastor Finley, would you pray for us? Would you pray for our health? Would you pray for our jobs? We're refugees in this country. The gospel is always everlasting. It's always eternal. It speaks to men and women of every generation. It speaks to men and women of every background, every culture. The gospel, the good news that Christ can deliver us from the guilt in grip of sin. Notice it says, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell on the earth. It's everlasting. That is to say, it's eternal and it's international. It's universal to those that every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The gospel is not the prerogative of a Western civilization. The gospel comes from the Middle East and it's eternal and universal. Then it says, saying with a loud voice, fear God. We pointed out that the word there is foibo. It's give reverential respect to God. Obey God 
that has to do with a respect that is so deep that you recognize the awesomeness of God and you obey Him. Fear God and give glory to Him in what you watch, what you eat, what you drink, for the hour of His judgment is come. Seventh-day Adventists believe that it's no more business as usual. It's no more pleasures as usual. We do not believe that we are simply another denomination raised up to dot the landscape of denominations. We believe passionately that we're living in the judgment hour just before the coming of Jesus, and that we are here by divine design to prepare people for the coming of Christ. So it says, Fear God and give glory, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Worship the Creator. The Sabbath becomes significant. Why is the Sabbath so significant in the eternal plan of God? There are really three reasons why the Sabbath is so significant. Reason number one, the Sabbath leads us back to the fact that we did not evolve. We're not a genetic accident. We're not merely skin-covering bones. We're not merely accidental chromosomal arrangement. The Sabbath reminds us that we were created by the living God. It reminds us that we have worth and value in His sight. We have worth in God's sight. We have value in God's sight. We're not animated mud. We're not some genetic accident. So the Sabbath takes us back to the one that made us. The Sabbath takes us back to the one that created us. So in, in understanding God as our creator, it gives us a sense of value. It gives us a sense of worth. But there's a second value of the Sabbath, practical value. You know, there are some that would separate the Sabbath from its theological implications. They would say, sure, we need the Sabbath. Everybody needs a day of rest. Everybody needs a day of the, with their family. That's true. That's very true. But the Sabbath has deep theological significance. Not only does it remind us of our Creator, but on the Sabbath we rest from our labors. So the Sabbath is a symbol of righteousness by faith, not righteousness by works. If I accept the first day of the week, that is the work of man, because God never changed the Sabbath, right? I may not understand it fully, but if I accept the Sabbath and I rest on the Sabbath, the true theological significance of that is I'm resting in His grace, resting in His love, resting in His care, resting in His justifying power. So the Sabbath is not a symbol of work, it's a symbol of what? rest, resting in the salvation that He provided on the cross. The Sabbath also reminds us that Eden is going to come again, that He's going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth. So what does the Sabbath do? Theologically, the Sabbath is so significantly important because it takes me from Genesis to Revelation. It's the eternal sign that God created me. It's the eternal sign that Christ redeemed me. It's the eternal sign that He is coming again to make this earth over again. Do you see why the devil hates the Sabbath so much? Because for the Christian believer, the Sabbath becomes that sign of the living Christ for creation, redemption, and the recreation that's coming. So it says, worship the one that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Worship the Creator. And you remember Revelation 4, verse 11 that we looked at this morning. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor in power. Why? Because you did what? Created all things. So the worthiness of Christ to be worshipped is intimately related to creation. If He did not create us, why do we worship Him? If you were the devil, remember what we said this morning, what would you do about it? You'd attack creation fiercely, so He has. The second angel's message has to do, in verse 8, with Babylon is fallen, is fallen, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In the Bible, wine represents false doctrine. And so, just as wine affects the forebrain, conscience, reason, and judgment, so Babylon, confused religion, has fallen, and she has passed around her wine cup of false doctrine. And then the third angel follows, if anyone worships the beast, incidentally, 
the reason that God has raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to proclaim the everlasting gospel so people will be sobered up, so people will think clearly. The reason God has raised up the Adventist Church is in the light of the gospel so men and women will fear or reverence God, verse 7 of Revelation 14, so they will give glory to Him in everything they do physically, mentally, so they'll understand the judgment hour, and so they'll worship Him as Creator. So God has raised up the Adventist Church with the pure teaching of Scripture that in the light of the fall of Babylon. Does that mean that there are not Christ-centered good Christians in other denominations? Not at all, because Scripture says in Revelation 18, Babylon has fallen, come out of her, my people. And so we are told that most of God's people today are where? They are in Babylon. And God is calling them out to the fullness of understanding of His truth. Now notice verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, Incidentally, if God pictures His last day message as being carried by three angels in the middle of heaven, do you think that message is, is pretty important? If God pictures that way, it must be incredibly important. Then a third angel followed them, saying, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand. Now, where is the seal of God received? Only in the forehead. forehead. Where is the mark of the beast received? Hand or the forehead. So the forehead symbolizes the forebrain. So the seal of God, what is that? It's a settling into the truth so that you, it's both spiritually and intellectually, so you can't be moved. The Sabbath becomes the visible sense of the sealing. And uh, wh- who, what is the, who is the agent of the sealing? The Bible says in Ephesians 4 that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So what is the sealing and how does that take place? The sealing is a process that begins at the time of your conversion. And the Holy Spirit begins revealing into our lives at the time of conversion the divine truths of God's Word. And as we accept those divine truths, the Holy Spirit, the representative of the living Christ, writes them indelibly upon our minds so we know them, and He writes them indelibly in our hearts so we love them. And so the sealing is a process in the life of the believer by the Holy Spirit where the person comes to the point in their life where they cannot be moved, where they are anchored in Christ. Um, And that takes place in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. And God pours His Spirit out in the latter rain just before the coming of Jesus, which we're going to study. So what is the mark of the beast in the forehead or in the hand? If the seal of God is only placed in the forehead, God never uses force. If the seal of God is the settling intellectually into the truth, guided and molded by the Holy Spirit, then the mark of the beast is the opposite of that. The mark of the beast can take place in the forehead or in the hand. What is the hand? In the Bible, the hand is a symbol of force. It's a symbol of coercion. It's a symbol of power. So the devil says, hey, look, I'm either going to intellectually convince you and deceive you, or I'm going to force you. One of those two. But God never uses force, because God only works through what? love. So, we go to now verse 9. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anybody worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead, or in his forehead, on his forehead, in the, in the brain, that person is, you know, obviously deceived. They've drunk the wine of Babylon. Or in his hand, they are forced. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now, we looked earlier, what is the wine of the wrath of God? Revelation 15, verse 1. When you look at the wrath of God, wrath of God is not the anger of God. It's not that God is angry. The wrath of God in the Bible has to do with the judgments of God. So it says, the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is what? The wrath of God is what? Complete. So, the wrath of God are the judgments of God upon this world in the seven last plagues. It says it's poured out, verse 10 of Revelation 14, poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And um, so, what do we see here? Revelation 10, God raises up a people. That people go through disappointment. God moves powerfully through them to proclaim His message, the message of the three angels. That message is being proclaimed. Men and women are being led back to worship the Creator. Thousands are coming to Christ. 
at the same time, Satan works to enforce something called the mark of the beast. So you have worshiping the Creator, and notice verse 9, it says, if any man worships the what? Beast. So you have worshiping the Creator, worshiping the beast. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints, here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So this matter of worshiping the Creator or worshiping the beast finds its focus in the commandments of God. So what is the sign of worshiping the Creator? That's the what? Sabbath. So the final conflict is one over worship. You remember in the days of Daniel, you had the conflict over worship. It was the second commandment. Will you bow down and worship the great golden image? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to that image. And so the test question was the second commandment. The test question at the end of time will be the fourth commandment. When everybody's had the opportunity to fully accept Jesus' way or the devil's way, when everybody's had the opportunity to receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast, when they've made their final irrevocable decision, when it can be written, he that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. When that can be written, when everybody's made their decision. Now, let me point out something that's quite critically important. Turn over to Revelation 22. And we need to talk a little bit about the close of probation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be what? Unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be what? Filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. When everybody has made their final irrevocable decision, and when only two classes left on earth, those who receive the seal of God and those who receive the mark of the beast. Previous to that time, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Previous to that time, God's Holy Spirit has been poured out powerfully so that everybody who has desired to know Christ and know His truth has had that opportunity. So everybody has made their final decision. It's at that point that probation closes. Probation does not close because of some arbitrary act on the part of God where God says, okay, I'm going to shut the door of heaven. Anybody that wants to be saved after this, too bad. You didn't make your decision soon enough. The door's shut. That's not true at all. What happens in heaven signals what has already happened on earth. He that is righteous, let him be what? Righteous still. He that is filthy, let him be what? Filthy still. I've had young people come to me and tremble and that said, Pastor Mark, what, what if probation has already closed? What if, what if God has come to my name already up there in heaven and probation has closed? There's no chance for me. That simply is not true. Banish that thought from your mind. If you want to be saved, there is mercy and grace in Christ to save you. Amen. Now look, what about Ellen White's statement in Great Controversy where she says, soon none know how soon, and I'm quoting directly, because this quote has been abused and I want to unabuse it. <laughs> soon none know how soon the judgment will pass from the dead to the living. She makes that statement. And somebody says, wait a minute, what if it's already passed to the living? The judgment of the living takes place when men and women choose either to receive the mark of the beast or the seal of God. That's exactly when the judgment of the living takes place. So they are then righteous or unrighteous. So when she makes the statement, soon none know how soon, the probation will close, she is talking about the church proclaiming the gospel so that men and women can make their final choice, not some arbitrary act up there in heaven where God said, hey, it's too late for you. So I want you to see the setting. 
We'll go back over here. I'm walking this way. Here's the timeline. Okay, God raises up a church, an end-time people. They look to the sanctuary. God anoints them with His Holy Spirit. They go out to preach the gospel to the world in the setting of the three angels' messages. As that gospel is being preached to the world, what takes place? As that gospel is being preached to the world, they are preaching a message of obedience and faithfulness to God. They're preaching the everlasting gospel. They're preaching the good news of Christ's soon return, the judgment, the message of health, the, and they're preaching about true worship on the Sabbath. That riles up Satan, and Satan becomes angry. He begins working marvelously. Eventually, the worship of the Creator and the worship of the beast come to a focal point, and we're gonna, that's where we're going now in our study. They come to a focal point. When everybody's made their final irrevocable decision for or against Christ, the seven last plagues are poured out. Now, look at Revelation 15 again. Revelation 15, verse 8. Can anybody enter the temple before the plagues? You know, when you give Bible studies, you will meet many evangelical Christians who have the idea that we're raptured before the time of trouble, right? And they say we do not go through this tribulation. They will link this to a seven-year tribulation, which there is not. But they will link it to that. But let me show you the evidence that God's people go through this period of time, but they are protected by God. Revelation 15, verse 8. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, and from His power no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels are completed. Does anybody enter the temple before the plagues? What does the Bible say? Not. Then it gives you chapter 16, the plagues are poured out, and uh, it... uh, Look at Revelation chapter 16, and uh, I have to quote most of this because most of my revelation is ripped out of my Bible, so if I don't know it, I don't know where the texts are. Um, Okay, so Revelation 16, i got to find this one. Look around verse 13 for for me, would you? Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Is that verse 13? Oh, 15. Okay, I'm two verses down. Okay. Uh, Behold, I'm coming as a thief, and blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, and uh, they walk naked and they won't see their shame. No, notice what he says after six plagues. I am coming as a what? Thief. If he says after six plagues he's coming as a thief, what does that mean? He has not what? Come as a thief when? Before the plagues, right? So, if Revelation 15, verse 8, nobody can enter the temple till the plagues are, what? Fulfilled. And if in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, he's coming as a thief after, what, the plagues. See, there's an easygoing, accommodating Christianity today. And the easygoing, accommodating Christianity is like a, is like a potato chip Christianity. It's like, a, it's like a Christianity that uh, it like, like sucks an M&M. I'm not against potato chips and M&Ms. Occasionally, you know, occasionally. Okay, very occasionally. Okay. I'd rather eat uh, carob and... Uh, I'd rather, eat, rather eat, eat, eat carob any day. And popcorn. You know, popcorn has good health. No, I can't get off the thing. Okay, so, um, look, there's an there's a easygoing, crossless Christianity. And it says, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You're never going to go through any trouble. And if you go through any trouble, uh, it's because you're off the map and not on the map. In fact, in the last days, don't worry about Mark of the Beast. Don't worry about Seal of God. Don't worry about time of trouble. He's just going to come and whisk you away. See, what that's preparing people for is it's a superficial Christianity that prepares them to collapse in the final crisis of this earth's history. And what is God saying to you and me? This is what he's saying. Look, I was with Moses, and I was with Daniel, and I was with Joseph, and I was with Paul, and I was with Peter. Every single one of them went through crises in their life, but I never left them, and I never forsake them. And I want you to know, Jesus is saying, that in the crises you go through today, I'm going to be with you. In the heartache that you go through today, I'm going to be there. In the disappointment that you go through today, I'm going to be with you. And when the final crisis breaks, never think I'm going to leave you or forsake you, because I don't forsake my people. He's with us always, Matthew 28, verse 20, even to the ends of the world. He, He says, I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, verse 5 and onward. And so, we see then the plagues poured out here. Now, let's go back and look at, in this class, some of the events 
what is it that's going to lead up to the mark of the beast being enforced? What are, what are the events that are going to lead up to that? How, how is that going to take place? And what I'm going to do for you is draw here, and some of you in the back um, may not be able to see this as well, so we're going to make this more vertical like this. Okay. What is, what about, I'm going to do a little drawing for you, and then I'm going to go back to the Bible to prove it. But I want to show you two things that are going to happen simultaneously. We're going to put two boxes here. And these events are going to be happening simultaneously. Boy, this is so small, you're not going to see it in the back at all. I can hardly see it from here. <laughs> all right. Can, can you see the whiteboard back there? All right. I'm going to erase those boxes. They're, they're no good. All right. I got the best eraser possible. All right. I'm going to just try to write pretty big, and we'll see what happens. Okay. On this side, you're going to see natural disaster. Whoa, there goes. All right. We're going to forget that board. We don't need it anyway. All right. Thank you for picking it up. All right. I can do this with my hands better. All right. No, no, no. I'm using this board right here. Okay. On this side, you're going to see famines and earthquakes and floods and natural disasters. Okay. That's one side. On this side, you're going to see chaos. You're going to see natural strife. On this side, you're going to see false revival. And when you see those two blends, now let me give you some evidence of this from the divine writings of Ellen White. And uh, let me give you just a couple references that are going to, go, are going to help us understand this. Uh, even more, even more clearly. One of the things that we are going to see coming up, um, Great Controversy, page 589 and uh, 590. You got the reference? What, great, what reference is it? 589 and 590. While appearing to the children of men as the great physician who can heal all their maladies, he will bring disease and disaster until the populous cities are reduced to ruin and desolation. Wow. The populous cities are reduced to what? Ruin and what else? Desolation. Even now. When? Even when is now? Now is now. Even now, he is at work in accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations. What's a conflagration? Fire. Fire. Have, what's a conflagration? Yeah, Southern California. <laughs> in fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms, in tempest floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes, in every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. He sweeps away the ripening harvest. You look at Northern Africa. Famine, distress follow. He imparts to the air a deadly taint. What's that? Air pollution. Thousands perish by the pestilence. Now, this next sentence, these visitations are to become more and more frequent and disastrous. So can we expect fewer or greater natural disasters? Fewer or greater? Greater. greater. Do we find that also in the Bible? Yes. Yeah. You look at Matthew chapter 20, what? 4, Luke chapter 21. So Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, and again, if you look at Matthew chapter 24, and let your eyes drop down to verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there'll be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. So, you look at Luke chapter 21, so natural disasters both the Bible and Ellen White predict will become more frequent. Will we see more hurricanes? Will we see more earthquakes? Will we see more tomatoes? Yeah, tomatoes, we hope so. <laughs> they have lipine, they're good health. Will we, will we see more, more tornadoes? Yes, I hope we see more tomatoes too. They're good for your health. All right. Luke chapter 21, here we go. Luke 21, verse 25. There'll be signs in the sun, moon, and the stars, on earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring, and men's hearts failing them for fear, for the expectation of those things coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Notice natural disasters. 
these natural disasters will become more and more frequent. We can expect more of this as we look at Scripture. Not only this, but on this same side. See, the devil delights in war. Why? Because he wants two reasons. One, he wants to sweep away people's lives who are unprepared for the coming of Christ. But there is another reason why, and that is he wants to create chaos and upheaval in society. If he's able to create this, notice Great Controversy, page 590. Then the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. See, so what does the devil do? He works to cause tornado, earthquake, famine, flood. He works to court to, to, to do natural disasters. Then it says, the class that have provoked the displeasure of heaven will charge all their troubles upon those whose obedience to God's commandments is a perpetual reproof to transgressors. It will be declared that men are offending God, that by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath, that this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance will be strictly enforced, and that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. So here's what happens. In the last days of earth's history, every seed goes to harvest. In the last days of verse history, the righteous who believe in Christ and who accept his love and grace in their lives, they become more committed and more faithful. The wicked who drift away from Christ, unbelievers, become more blatant in their unbelief. As that begins to take place, Satan begins to stir up, and as far as God allows, Satan creates natural disasters, as far as God allows that. They're not simply natural phenomena, but God withdraws his hand, and as God withdraws his hand, you remember Revelation 7 says that he's holding back the winds of what? Holding back the winds of strife. And so God allows those winds of strife to blow upon this earth. As he does, as he does, disasters begin taking place. They become more and more frequent and more and more disastrous. The devil, seeing that, knowing that this is a signal of the coming of Christ, wanting to trap in his snares as many as he can, the devil does something else. What does he do? Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. On the one hand, you see conflict, you see strife. On the one hand, you see natural disasters, but there's something taking place on the other hand. What do we see on the other hand there? Revelation chapter 13. We're looking there at Revelation 13, and uh, let your eyes drop down to um, verses 13, 14. We'll go down. Notice what it says. It says, He makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And um, what is the devil doing? The devil wants to work miracles, false miracles. And as, what is this about? He makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. What's that talking about? Does anybody remember what fire, symbol of fire, is in the Bible? The Holy Spirit, yes, but even deeper than that. Um, when, when, when's the first time fire is mentioned in the Bible? Before. Before. Eden, you've got it, Eden. Remember the flaming sword of fire? What did that represent? The presence of God. W what about Moses, the Shekinah glory above the tabernacle? Between the two angels, what was that? The presence of God. What about the pillar of fire? The presence of God. So all through the Old Testament, fire is a symbol of the presence of God. Now, what, when do you read about fire in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit comes down with, uh, like a dove uh, on Jesus, but he also comes down as tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2. So you have fire representing the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. So fire always represents the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in one way or the other, the presence of God. 
when you have tongues of, when you have the fire coming down from heaven, Satan calling that down, what is that? That's the false fire or the false presence of God in false revival movements. So that's what it's generally, it's the false revival movement. Do some of those false revival movements use the gift of tongues? They do. But the, the idea of fire coming down from heaven is not some atomic blast that comes down from heaven. The Bible has to be used to interpret itself. It really has to do with, the, with a false manifestation of the presence of God, not strictly limited to the uh, gift of tongues, but all false manifestations of emotion in the presence of God. We're going to talk this afternoon a lot about the true and false manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's continue to look here in Scripture. Let's go over to Revelation, and I want you to go over to Revelation, the 16th chapter, Revelation, the Actually, let's go to Revelation 19. Let's go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and notice this is talking about the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19, and you're going to look at verse 19 and 20. Revelation 19, verse 19 and 20. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. Or in the King James Version, it says, worked miracles in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. How were those who received the mark of the beast deceived? How were they deceived? By the false miracles. You got it. That's what it says in the text, isn't it? Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs or miracles in his presence, by which he deceived those. The by which refers to the signs of the miracles, by which he received those who received the mark of the beast. Go back to Revelation 16 now and read verse 14. Revelation 16, and look at verse 14. What is it that enables, it says, in Revelation 16, 14, these are the spirits of demons performing what? <laughs> performing miracles or signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth. So you have two things that are happening. On the one side, natural disasters. On the one side, the arming and planning of war. On the other side, a false religious revival. And the false religious revival with a false manifestation and understanding of what Christianity is all about. Ellen White comments on that, again, in the book Great Controversy, page 588. She says, as spiritualism more closely imitates the nominal Christianity of the day, it has greater power to deceive and ensnare. Satan himself is converted after the modern order of things. He will appear in the character of an angel of light through the agency of spiritualism. Miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, and many undeniable wonders will be performed. So let me summarize it this way. At a time when the economic bottom falls out of America, at a time when there are calamities all over the earth, at a time when there are uncertainty, and political leaders do not understand the solution to the problems, God begins to work through His Holy Spirit. Honest in heart are led into His true movement. Satan works with a false religious revival. And that false religious revival is one in which there are false miracles. The sick will be healed, apparently healed, and uh, it will be filled with emotion, signs, and wonders. It will then be proposed that those who don't go along with this false religious revival are the cause of these natural disasters, these wars, and these calamities. Um, pressure will be put on politicians. Now, we should never think that the beast power is going to rise from above and enforce the mark of the beast. That's not the way it's going to happen at all. See, many people say, hey, what's going on now in Congress? Is there some secret Sunday law? There is not. The, the strategy of the devil is different. Let me read to you Great Controversy 592. Rulers and legislators. Who's that rulers and legislators? Who's that? Could be Congress, could be Senate. In order to secure public favor. What do they want to secure? Public favor. What's public favor? Votes. <laughs> 
will yield to the popular demand. What is the demand? Popular demand. What, what does it mean, popular demand? Yeah, popular demand. That's the people, right? It's a movement among the people. The popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. So notice that sentence carefully in the context of everything we've said. What happens? Natural disasters, war, strife all over the world. False religious revival. Apparently, Satan begins to work, and people think this is the working of God. And then there is a popular demand. There's a popular uprising among the people. And what does the popular demand say? It says those people that don't go along, that are not worshiping on the true Bible on Sunday, they are the cause of all these things. Therefore, the legislators yield to the popular demand. So how does this work? How does this work? First, we see these developments taking place in America. But then as we do that, we see, as we'll show this afternoon, Protestantism reaching across the Gulf. Now, notice Great Controversy 588. Through two great errors. How many errors? Two. two. The immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness. Satan will bring people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation for spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be what? The foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf to grasp the hands of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power and under the influence of this threefold union, that's spiritualism which infiltrates Protestantism um, and Catholicism. This country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. So what can we expect? We can expect a false religious revival among Protestantism that leads Protestantism itself to downplay the authority of Scripture and place emphasis on an emotional religion. As they place emphasis on emotional religion, they will border on spiritualism, that is, the God within you. So we will expect Protestantism to be entering into forms of meditation, forms of religious experience that bypass Scripture, bypass the authority of Scripture, and place the self as the supreme one of the dwelling place of God. Rather than worshiping the God who is there, outside of us, rather than meditating upon the Word in Him. So we should expect that. We should expect spiritualistic nuances to flow through Protestantism. We should expect as well natural disasters. We should expect nations to be arming for nuclear war. We should expect at this same time great calamities. This should drive us to our knees to know Christ in ways that we have not known him before for a deep longing manifestation to have Christ in our life. It should give us a passion to witness. We should expect the outpouring of the genuine Holy Spirit to counteract the outpouring of the spirits of demons. And we should believe that God is going to raise up a people to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. Amen. That's the first two. Now, I'll take five, six minutes of questions on anything we've covered so far, not in the future. Uh, and we're going to go into this uh, much more deeply this afternoon on the different steps. See, the mark of the beast isn't going to be enforced all at once. There will be steps, and we'll take a look at those this afternoon. But some questions, yes? Well, I know you kind of addressed it, but I just kind of want a clarification. Some people say that the probation closes sort of at different levels to different people. So I've heard that for SDAs, they were closed when the Sunday law was doing because we've had light on that. Is that true? Um, it, I think it's pretty obvious when I look at Scripture this way, that when probation closes, it is an individual thing. I think it is. Um, and it's not, probation will close not because of God saying it just closed for you, but it rather is closing because of the decisions that that person has made in their own lives. So when the National Sunday Law is, is passed, I'm sure that there will be people that will make final irrevocable decisions to compromise or receive the mark of the beast. So to whom much is given, much is required, yes. Okay, yes ma'am. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, I will. Her quote is this, soon, none know how soon, the judgment will pass from the uh, dead to the living. 
Some have used that to say, has the judgment already taken place for the living now? That's what they've done. Her quote is, there are two explanations for it. Number one is this, her quote is true. Nobody knows when the National Sunday Law will be passed, so nobody knows when that probation will close. Nobody knows when the seal of God and the mark of the beast will be enforced. So you can look at it in that context. You can look at it also in this context. You know there are a number of statements in the writings of Ellen White where she says, Christ could have come ere this. So had, had the church risen to its destiny and done the work that Christ had proclaimed it to do, the coming of Jesus would have been sooner and the judgment of the living, namely when men and women make their final irrevocable decisions for or against Christ, would have taken place sooner. Okay, so you can look at it from two standpoints. Number one, the standpoint of the fact that nobody does know when these events are going to take place. The standpoint number, not that it already has taken place. Number two, in the context of conditional prophecy. Okay, yes. Sure. Um, the, the Revelation 22, verse 11 says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be unholy still. The way I see it is this. When he says it is finished, that's, there, there are, in the book of Revelation, there are, there's one place that it says it is finished, another place says it is done. Revelation 21 says it's done, that's at the end of the thousand years. But the place it says it is finished is at the end of the sixth plague. So that is talking about what has taken place at the, it says it is finished, it's talking about probation has closed at the beginning of those plagues. So it's referring you back to the beginning of those plagues. So the it is finished statement is at the end of the closing of probation, not at the beginning, okay? So when it says, he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. That is a continuous present. In other words, this is a fact that is, is, has happened. So what I, the way I would look at it is, is very simple, that the statement it is finished does not refer to the beginning of the close of probation, but to the end of it, okay? Because if you take the other position, I think it puts you in a very awkward place. And the place that it puts you in is that does everybody make their decision to receive the mark of the beast or the seal of God at the same time? See, does everybody make that decision at the same time? And if probation closes before a person receives the mark of the beast, what sense would it make for them to receive the mark of the beast at that time? I mean, what, what, or, or how would you figure that out? So to me, it's much more biblical in harmony with the spirit of prophecy and logic to say that when the National Sunday Law is passed, people begin to make their decisions. As they make their decisions, probation closes for them, and the statement that it is finished announces that everybody has already made their decision. That's the way I would see it. Okay? Yes? Um, when you say the spiritual oppression, does it uh, also include the, the false prophet? I may be too, in the after home, we're talking about the Benihin. Is it somebody like you? He really failed because he got divorced. Yeah. Two, <laughs> yeah. Like one of the, 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 the first evangelists was going to Africa and uh, can make people in the state of Paul and then, uh, like, how do you call it? Spiritually tortured or something? Okay. Um, I would not put the idea of the false prophet in the book of Revelation is a much broader term. Some of those may fit under that term. I let God judge them. Um, I look at their fruits. <laughs> yeah, but just let me, let me answer your question, though. Let me, let me. From Indonesia, when I, when I saw you come to Indonesia, it feels different. Yeah. He went to Indonesia, too. Yeah. And he, he said in the paper, with the president of Indonesia, he said, uh, what, is it, what is it in the paper? Uh, God loves Indonesian people. Yes. Let me. Okay. Let me answer. Let me answer your question. The term "false prophet" is in harmony. It says the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The dragon represents Satan. 
of course, the beast represents the papacy, and the false prophet is a general term to describe religious confusion, particularly Protestantism. Okay? I'll take one more question. Yes, ma'am. I want to be sure I hear you. Okay. The question is, he ate, they ate the little book and it was bitter in his stomach. Why was it bitter? The honey in the mouth was sweet. When they studied the book of Daniel, it was sweet in their mouth. They believed Jesus was going to come. The reason it was bitter is they were so bitterly disappointed when Jesus did not come. So it was bitter because they were so bitterly disappointed. You will be bitterly disappointed if you don't eat lunch on time. So it's 1131. So I'm going to let you out now. And, um, and now, this afternoon, what time's our class? What time? 2.45 for class. We're, I'm going to go to the graphics, I hope, this afternoon. We're going, to look at, um, we're going to look at the latter rain, okay? This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.